Hey, I'm Holly from Massachusetts. I'm James from Salt Lake City. I'm Jason R. Wallace from America's Georgia in these United States. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's sometime in the 1950s, and Mel Brooks is in a Chicago hotel room. He's working late into the night with his boss at the time, the television star Sid Caesar. As Mel tells it, Sid's been drinking vodka and smoking cigars for hours while they do punch-up on their script. Then Mel makes a mistake. He says he needs to get some air. There was a window there, you know, in this hotel. Probably was shut for 30 years. He just yanked it open, you know, easily. One grabbed the two handles. It was wide open. Cold air came rushing through. He grabbed me by the collar and by the seat of my pants and hung me out the window. I could see Michigan Avenue. I looked down. There were yellow cabs. I was. I said, "This." So this is how it ends. I just. I thought. And then he said, "He got enough air." Yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm ready to work. It's bullseye. Coming up, I talk to Mel Brooks about his unparalleled career. And we talk about some of his collaborators. He wrote for Sid Caesar on television in the 1950s and worked with Gene Wilder on Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein in the 1970s. But one of Brooks' biggest comedic inspirations was a man he never met, one Adolf Hitler. My modus operandi was to bring Hitler down with his funny salute, his little mustache. I did a very good job at it. And find out why Brooks gets away with the stupidest of puns. I can probably count hundreds just in History of the World Part 1, and that's one of my favorite movies ever. They're meant to be bad jokes. You know that. They're meant to be. I mean, I'm I'm not caught unaware. Then later, I talk to the directors of a documentary that follows the transformation of a man from World War II flying ace into Father Yod, the leader of a 1970s commune in the Hollywood Hills. He would do everything from seemingly channel wise words from Atlantis to start singing, you know, crooner songs from the 30s. And we'll hear some of the psychedelic music that Father Yod made with his followers, the Source family. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we check in with our favorite culture critics to get recommendations for stuff worth your time. This week we're joined by Andrew Nas to recommend some rap music. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? How's it going, Jesse? Oh, it's going well. Let's start with Chance the Rapper and his song, Juice. Let's take a listen. So, 
I've been listening a lot to Chance's uh, mixtape from, I, I guess, from, from last year, and he just came out with a brand new mixtape called Acid Rap. Um, tell me what you like about Chance the Rapper. He reminds me a lot of a sort of strain of 90s rap that was coming out of L.A., you know, unique cadences and weird styles and, like, different inflections, like... the. The intent was to kind of approach every song almost like a jazz musician, I guess. It was very experimental. It was very bugged out. Like, you know, I read an interview about this tape, and he literally was like, yeah, I want to rap in a different cadence on every song. Well, as long as we're talking about rappers with distinctive styles, let's take a listen to your second recommendation for this week, uh, a song by Young Thug featuring Maceo called Pikachu. I don't think you're going to mistake Young Thug for anybody else. <laughs> no. I mean, maybe if you read his name, which is like the most generic name in all of rap. Um, it, tell, tell me a little bit of, about uh, Young Thug and what you like about this, about this record and this sort of world that, that he's from. Well, yeah, he's a young rapper out of Atlanta, and he's kind of emerged out of this scene of quietly popular sing-songy rappers. When I when I think about Young Thug, I imagine Lil Wayne, kind of if he had never tried to make anything resembling a cohesive pop song, if he had just stayed that mixtape dude who was making really strange things constantly, like circa 2006, 2007... And he just stayed that course and got stranger and stranger and just, like, less sane. Andrew Nas is a columnist for Pitchfork. He runs the blog Cocaine Blunts and uh, the great Tumblr, Tumblin' Herb. Uh, he recommends Young Thug featuring Maceo's song, Pikachu, and Chance the Rapper's Juice. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Who's Mel Brooks? I'll tell you. Mel Brooks is funny. He's the personification of funny. He spent 60 years <laughs> making us laugh. Your show of shows, Get Smart, The Producers, Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs. I think that between the time my parents got VCRs when I was about seven and when I turned 15, I watched History of the World Part One a hundred times, probably more. Mm. 
Last year, Shout Factory put out a box set looking back at Brooks' career, from rare audio recordings to little-scene TV pilots. This year, he's the subject of an American Masters documentary on PBS. It's an honor to have him on Bullseye. Mel Brooks, welcome to the show. C'est un grand plaisir. C'est merveilleux, heureux. Je suis très heureux de vous voir. Wait a minute. You're, this ain't French. No, not at all. We're not, <laughs> not in, in the slightest. This is not a, an interview. You're not from Paris. Where are you from? San Francisco. So what am I doing this <laughs> French? Okay, forget it. Forget what I said. Let's talk about your hometown. You're from Brooklyn, from Williamsburg. I'm from Williamsburg. You know, we used to pay $18 a month in rent to Williamsburg. I think you couldn't get an apartment for 3800 a month there now. It's it's become hip. It's become chic. It's become au courant. I don't know. Williamsburg has become very modern. Your your father died when you were very young, and you had uh, three older brothers. Right? Yeah, I was interviewed about that, and... I think it was you. You Downs was interviewing me. You Downs said, "So, uh, so you lost your father when he was only when he was only thirty-four years old." And I said, "No." He said, "Well, what do you mean, no? We have your father died when you were two, and he was thirty-four. I said, "That's true. He died, but we didn't lose him. <laughs> he, was, he was in the bedroom. He was dead. But no, nobody lost you. Don't you don't lose people. You you still regard them somehow." So anyway, I had I, I had a lot of fun with him. He he didn't quite get me, you know, but you know, I, I had to go easy. Was there a point when you realized that your family was in a precarious? Like, was there a point where you saw the outside world, like as a thirteen-year-old or something like yeah, that? Yeah, not till I was a teenager did I realize that. Oh my God, we're poor, you know. <laughs> Better do something about that. And how did that happen? I don't know. I think uh, what what I you know we had moved to Brighton Beach because my mother and my mother took in a boarder, and uh, so she things were easier. We we I think my grandmother moved there for some reason, so my mother followed her, and we had two years at Brighton Beach. And when I was in Brighton Beach, there were there were uh, rich people and poor people, and. Uh, I saw some, you know, some of the kids at Abraham Lincoln High School. I was a drummer in the band, and uh, some of the kids had really fancy apartments in uh, on in Brighton Beach, near the ocean, and uh, you know, three or four bedrooms, and it was an incredible difference. And I realized we were we we just we still had two bedrooms, one for my mother, and one for the all the boys. Of course, but what what got better in Brighton Beach is that we all we didn't all sleep in the same bed, and it wasn't the king. They, there was no king size beds. It was just a full, uh, and uh, I didn't mind it. I was crushed between Irving and Bernie, and you know I loved it. I loved my brothers, and and in the, in the winter it was warm. So, but I realized we are not well to do. When you were a teenager, was were you aware of? Hitler like was that something that was did you have did you have family any family still in Europe or? there were intimations I mean I just we we heard about this guy Hitler I didn't know I was going to make a living out of him but you know, <laughs> I had no idea but anyway you uh, were going to become Hitler's yeah, foremost yeah, chronicler right, in song yeah. and dance uh, well you know when I finally did do stuff about Hitler and I got letters from rabbis and you know Jewish organizations all over America 
and not not good letters. And <laughs> I try I try to explain that if you got on a soapbox with these brilliant orators, these dictators, you didn't have a chance because they had they had power and they had magnetism in their speech. But if you could ridicule them, you were a step ahead. And and you could if you could bring them down with laughter, then 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 you were doing your job. And that's what that was my my modus operandi was to bring Hitler down with his funny salute, his little mustache, and and uh, I did a very good job at it. How old were you when you went into the service? Actually, I went into the service at seventeen. You say how? You're supposed to be eighteen. The Army Specialized Training Reserve, very important word, program. You could join at seventeen if you passed the test, and I did. Uh, were your bro- were your your older brothers? Had they? Been- they were already in the, in the army, and I think my mother could have gotten me out by simply saying, "I've got three boys in the service, and you know, and I don't want my baby in the you know." And they would, I think, they would have given me a pass on. But I, you know, I I just wanted the excitement of being being in the army, being a soldier. I studied electrical engineering at Virginia Military Institute. A little boy, Jewish boy from Brooklyn, sent down to Virginia, to VMI, Lexington, Virginia, the West Point to the South. Very prestigious, but uh, but they were very sweet, very kind, and you know, and I loved fried chicken. And I, the first time I tasted Dr Pepper, and the first time I was allowed to have cheeseburgers, because there was uh, you didn't have it very often in Brooklyn. I don't think they were famous. <laughs> And uh, I just liked it. The only thing that was tough was you had to take care of your horse. They, they taught you how to ride a horse. And, they, you know, you rode for a little while. They gave you a saber. You cut down bamboo poles with little flags on them. I, I was like, this is silly. You just pull out a gun and kill anything in your way. Why, why were you? you know, what, what is, I didn't get it. You know, anyway. You're describing it as wonderful, but it's also, you know, a prelude to going to war. And that must have been really scary. Well, you know, I always thought it was like I was in a newsreel. It never really, there was nothing real about it, you know? I thought, it, it's kind of like show business, you know? They give you a uniform, and I, I was, I got a little metal. But then and then someone tries to kill you. Yeah, well, yeah that was difficult. <laughs> yeah, And then, then I, I, you know, I think it occurred to me when finally uh, I was in Normandy, not in the invasion, I was lucky, a year, if my mother had given birth to me a year earlier, I would have been, we wouldn't have had this conversation. Because I missed D-Day and I missed the battle, you know, of the bulge at, at Bastogne. And I got there a couple of months after that. I only had three or four months of combat. I know that I was a radio operator at the beginning before I was in the combat engineers. I was in the field artillery. And I was a radio operator and I would be giving positions. I would start with Wilco Fox. George, Howe, Roger, and I'd say, Howie, there's a church. You see the church at the top of the hill? You see the yellow house? The Germans are in that yellow house near the church. Just shoot over there, you know. Instead of all this Wilco, Howe, Fox, map coordinates, you know, for, for artillery. But, you know, but when we finished broadcasting, the Germans were sensational at at a cross-finding where we were broadcasting from, and just a minute or so later, uh, there would be there'd, there'd be a straddle of 88 shells exploding across the road that we were just on a minute ago. 
So it, it was very, you know, I could have, I, you know, it, it, it was dangerous. The whole war was dangerous. There were some spots in the war that were fun, believe it or not. I was, we were across a river or a creek from some Germans, and I heard, yeah, yeah, I put it in the blazing saddles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I picked up a megaphone and I sang Tut Tut Tootsie goodbye. Don't cry, Tootie, don't cry. And then at the end of the song I thought I had this and say good. I heard a little more. They liked it, you know. So there were spots like that during during the uh, during the war. You got started in show business um as a fill-in in Catskills Resorts. You had been working, I mean, it was like your summer job, right, to be whatever the cabana Yeah, we had one that. star in, in Williamsburg, Don Appel, who actually uh, gained some fame. He wrote a, a play called This Too Shall Pass about anti-Semitism. Very good play, which had a pretty good run off-Broadway. And uh, I may have been on Broadway. There was there was not much off Broadway then. Don Appel then later, he was, he began by working in the Borscht Belt in the Catskills, and he uh, he actually worked with Sid Caesar, and he introduced me to Sid Caesar. I was a drummer in the Catskills. He got me the job as a drummer. And he got me and and then Pincus Cone, who ran the Butler Lodge, that I was playing in. I said, Pincus Cohen. I said, just use one of those names. It's redundant. You don't need to. So, uh, and he would call me Melbourne. M-E-L-B-M-N-N-N. Melbourne. You know. So he said, the comic is sick. That's how I became a comedian. He said, you know all that uh, that stuff. Uh, uh, Bernie, it was either Bernie or Jackie. That was your name if you were a comic in the mountains. And either it was Bernie or Jackie that was sick. And so I took over that night. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I met a girl. She was beautiful but very thin, incredibly thin. She was so thin, I took her to a restaurant. The maitre d' said, check your umbrella. That's how skinny she was. But I wanted to. Those were the jokes. I remembered them because I was the drummer and I heard them and they were <laughs> dreadful. And then later, I said, I'm going to take, take stuff from real life because it just I was, I was struck by this incredible thought that familiar and human was a deep source of humor. For instance, there was uh, a guy, uh, head of the social staff, and he, his name was uh, Joe, Uncle Joe, they called him, and uh, he, Joe Greenblatt or Greenbaum, and he had a lateral emission, Okay, is there any sugar? Who, who's got sugar? I need some sugar. This is very bitter. I need sugar. Sugar. So I got one night, I just got up on stage and instead of saying, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, I met a girl who was so thin. I said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, anybody got sugar? I need some sugar. They all knew him. They went crazy. And I said, now this, I never got laughs like that. So I just drew from real life and I became valuable to Sid Caesar when he was when he was doing his comedy because he liked that kind of humor instead of jokes, instead of, you know, uh, my wife kept bugging me the kind of jokes that that would was done in those days. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm talking with Mel Brooks. An American Masters documentary about his life and work premieres on PBS this month. In the 1950s, Brooks wrote for Sid Caesar on the variety television show Your Show of Shows. Here's a clip. Caesar and Imogen Coca are dining at a health food restaurant. The waiter is played by Carl Reiner. Well, well, I don't know. What would you suggest I have? Well, how about a nice penicillin pudding? Penicillin pudding? With a hypodermic or you take it nasally? What do you do? Darling, why don't you have a steak? Steak? Sure. Where? Where's the steak? Right there. Steak, oh, uh, by Tony Steak made of broccoli germ, <laughs> asparagus gluten, carrot dextrose, and celery. <laughs> and with that, you get two vegetables. Oh, I need them very much. <laughs> Hey, what is he eating? I'll, I'll have that, that, uh, that spaghetti. I'll have that, yeah. That's not spaghetti, sir. That's spaghetti. Cabbage extract and cauliflower derivative. It looks like spaghetti, so we call it spaghetti. <laughs> well, I'll have a veal kitlet with some ravioli on the side. Sid Caesar is an, an absolutely amazing... Yeah, well, for me, for me, it was it was the kind of seminal aspect of my career in show business. He, uh, I would have been a, a stand-up comic, or I would have been a performer much earlier, and may have been over with. You know, my media may have burned out, but uh, it was good enough. It was fine just writing for Sid Caesar because he was a great vehicle for my my comedy, my passion, and and I was very happy. Just to see him nail it, couldn't get a better guy to write for. He's a huge man and has the physique of like a, um, you know, a, a, a boxer or a bodybuilder before people really knew yeah. how to use yeah, weights. Like right. just a huge man. Yeah, he had big shoulders. He had a small waist, washboard abs, big muscles. I mean, he, he could be the Hulk. And, uh, you know, one time we were in Chicago and I was writing some new jokes for for a monologue for him. And I, at the end of every show, he would put down a lot of vodka. It was a, a lot of tension, you know, and he was relaxing. And we were up in, in his suite, and I'm trying to write. And he was smoking cigars then, and, and the place was full of cigar smoke. And I, it was 2 in the morning. I couldn't breathe. And I said, Sid, i got to go out. I just have to go out. I have to get some air. I can't. I can't do it. And he was kind of drunk. And he said, air? You want air? I'll give you air. There was a window there, you know, in this hotel. Probably was shut for 30 years. He just yanked it open, you know, easily. One grabbed the two handles. It was wide open. And uh, air, cold air came rushing through. He grabbed me by the collar and by the seat of my pants, and hung me out the window. I could see Michigan Avenue. I looked down. There were yellow cabs. I was. I said, this, so this is how it ends. I, just, I thought, And then he said, you got enough air? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm fine. I'm fine. No, I'm ready to work. Right? So he took me back, you know, and, and he was really strong. Thank God he was that strong. He never, he never dropped me. He had a good, good grip on me. I'll talk more with Mel Brooks after a break. He'll tell me what he thought he could get away with as a filmmaker, like a musical about Hitler. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
Are you looking to escape your troubles? Hop on a boat with Mark Marin, John Hodgman, Dan Deacon, and a ton of other comedians and musicians. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for three nights of music, comedy, and yes, shuffleboard. Online at boatparty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, sponsored by MaximumFun.org, Splitsider, KCRW, and MailChimp. I'll see you on the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mel Brooks. An American Masters documentary about his life and work premieres May 20th on PBS. In the 1950s, Brooks wrote comedy for Sid Caesar on your show of shows. As the 1960s began, Brooks stopped working for Caesar and eventually started a new show, the spy parody Get Smart. Around this time, Brooks was developing the idea for what would become his first film, a musical comedy called The Producers. What was it like to have as your, um, you know, because you, you worked for, you ended up working for Sid Caesar for like eight or ten years, right? Yeah. You know, well, let me tell you a great story. This is, a lot of people may have heard this before, I doubt it. So he had finished, he was coming to the end of two years of the show of shows. Thirty-nine, one hour and a half shows per season. I mean, this is... And he was getting something like, oh, I think in the second year, $5,000 a show, which was an incredible fortune then. I was getting 150 a week or something, which was, was for me, you know, my brother Irving was making $37 a week, so this was an amazing amount of money. I was getting 150 So... I had a me- I had I said, Sid, we're gonna have a meeting. So what do you mean we're gonna have a meeting? We we never have a meeting, we just talk to each other. I said, No, this is a meeting. We're gonna have so I said, We're gonna go to Alan Dix, we're gonna have dinner, we're gonna have a long meeting, you and I. And I explained during this meeting, I said, Sid, in six or eight weeks, you're gonna be finishing your second season. And I know, I did some homework, I know that your contract is finished and you've got to sign yeah, he said, "Yeah, well, they off- they offered me a- another three years, you know," and uh, and I said, "You're not going to take it." He said, "What do you mean? What are you talking about? What are you crazy?" I said, "No, you're not going to take it." I said, "You're as easily as talented as Danny Kay. Danny Kay is a giant movie star. We should really be serious about this. You and I should go to Hollywood and make movies." And he agreed. He went to Max Liebman, who was the producer of the show. Max Liebman went to Pat Weaver, who created this concept of the show of shows. He was an, uh, an NBC guy, and he was an NBC genius. And so he, so Weaver and, and Max and David Sarnoff, I mean, the whole big corporation, RCA, you know, big stuff. Sid Caesar leaving, it was unthinkable, but... He could. He could. Contract was up. Well, as you know, he didn't go to Hollywood and make movies till much later. He, he, he did make movies, but not like the Sid Caesar movies I had in mind. So what happened? He called me. They called him in. They met with him. 
and with William Morris office that was his agents Harry Kalshein and they had like a six or eight hour meeting it was amazing I, I wasn't invited and he described the meeting in detail he was he had a brilliant mind and uh, he said in the end we couldn't say no they were offering us $25,000 a show I said what he said $25,000 a show and complete control because the advertising agencies had a lot more control and he said no advertising agency you know and and he said it's the greatest contract you know I can't he says and it's for three years and so that was the end of our dream and I finally did I escaped I went I made I did the producers in New York and the 12 chairs in Yugoslavia and blazing saddles for Warner Brothers out in in, in Burbank, and I did it. I did it, and, and, and they're around forever. And I say to people, do you know the show of shows? Do you know the sketch? Do you know all my great, and some of my, the best writing I've ever done in my life with Larry, uh, with geniuses like Larry Gelbart and Mel Tolkien and Neil Simon, and I mean, great stuff, gone, <laughs> gone with the wind. But every movie I've made even the ones that are not so well-known are well-known. The 12 Chairs, uh, Dracula, Dead and Loving It. Not so well-known, but well-known. I don't even have to mention Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles or Spaceballs or, because they're there forever. There was a period in between for you, wasn't there? Wasn't there a period in between before you made The Producers? that you, you were Well, yeah, I was out of work. work. How long were you out of work for? I think we went off the air in 59, and uh, so in 1960, I was completely out of work. And uh, you were married. You had I well, I was I was I was and somewhere in the middle of 60 when I didn't have a pet. We were separated. My first wife wasn't her fault. I was I was having an I frankly I was having a nervous breakdown, and I I wasn't I really wasn't good company. Where, where was it coming from? Just from not- I guess it was coming from frustration and not. After being one of the top comedy writers in America, suddenly just no show, no no employment, no nothing, you know. And so uh, I got a few jobs. I I got a job with Jerry Lewis, which was good. I got a job with Victor Borga. I, I did the Andy Williams show. I was the producer on the Polly Bergen show, which was crazy. But but I I just worked a little. In, in smidgens, but not really anything I really wanted to do. What I really wanted to do was this thing. I was writing a book called Springtime for Hitler, you know, about, about uh, I think it was the, it was the book of a, of a show. I, I knew it would be a show. Maybe, I don't think it was a musical yet. It was a, I think it was a play. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I started as a book. I was to talk too much. There was just too much dialogue. So I said, well, it's, it's a play. Then I brought it to Kermit Bloomgarden, who did Death of a Salesman. He's a wonderful producer, friend of mine. And he said, too many scenes. Cut it down to three or four scenes. And I, and I said, I can't. It just goes everywhere. He said, then maybe it's a movie. You go everywhere in a movie. I said, okay. So I began writing it as a movie, and that was in 63, and, uh, and still grabbing little jobs here and there. And then, I, but but I was depressed. I was out of work. Now I'm surprised to hear 
that people were telling you, oh, this has too many scenes. Oh, this is too talky. Not, oh, this is about some guys who are putting on a musical about Hitler. Yeah, well. Because <laughs> that seems like what they would open with. Well, you know, uh, they didn't mention that, but I'm sure that was in the back of their minds. We're not going to do this. This guy's crazy. We're not going to do this. Did you we're, think we're not they were crazy? We're not going to do a that? movie about Hitler. Is he nuts? The war is just over, you know. Were you aware that that was crazy? Because no. it was crazy. No, I wasn't aware. I thought it was fine. You know, I thought it was funny. Did you but, run it by anybody? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, I ran it by a lot of different people <laughs> just who, who just said, you know, we'll let you know or, you know, we'll, don't call us, we'll call you. And finally, there was a guy called Sidney Glazier, G-L-A-Z-I-E-R. And he, uh, his name is on the poster. And he said, I love it. You know, actually, he was eating a tuna fish sandwich with coffee. He said, tell me the story. And in the middle of springtime for Hitler, he spit, every, he spit out the sandwich and the coffee, and he fell on the floor. He said, we've got to make this movie. Germany was having trouble. What a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? We looked around, and then we found the man for you. Anyway, I still needed money, and uh, I got a call from uh, David Susskind and Danny Melnick. They had a company called Talent Associates, and uh, they offered me the lead and the leading to create and be the lead in a in a television show spoofing I Spy, you know, with with uh, Cosby and and and. Uh, or, James Bond, and you're spoofing the CIA. And I said, I'll do it, but I don't want to be in it. I wasn't ready. I said, uh, I need somebody, and they got me Buck Henry, and I met with Buck Henry and fell in love with him. And we, we got it done. It was great. Hamptown ladies sing this song. Do-da, do-da, Hamptown racetrack, five miles long. Oh, da do da day. Gonna run all night, gonna run all day. I bet my money in a bobtail nag, somebody bet... <laughs> On the bay. Is that you, 24? Yes, 86. Are you sure you weren't followed? Absolutely sure. So anyway, Get Smart was going, so there was an income, and I was able to get enough money to make, uh, to make the producers, which was not successful, wasn't unsuccessful, it just meandered, kind of meandered along. It was kind of considered a, a crazy art picture, and not not it didn't have any stars. It had Zero Mostel and this unknown guy, Gene Wilder. In fact, I'm going to play your Oscar acceptance speech from oh. the script for the producers. Yeah, it was the I, original I, screenplay. It was amazing. Yeah, I I only wish that I could play the extended back and forth between Don Rickles and Frank Sinatra that precedes it, mm-hmm. um, but it would be a little bit too long. Uh, I didn't trust myself in case I won, so I wrote a couple of things here. I want to thank the Academy of Arts, Sciences, and Money for this wonderful (laughs) award. Uh, Well, I'll just say what's in my heart. 
Ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. But seriously, I'd like to thank Sidney Glazer, the producer of The Producers, for producing The Producers. <laughs> Joseph E. Levine and his wife, Rosalie, for distributing the film. <laughs> I'd also like to thank Zero Mostel. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. Thank you very much. I think that the Gene Wilder is sort of the magic ingredient of the producers in that as you go through <laughs> the scheme, which is obviously the most horrible thing anyone could ever do, pretty yes. much, the thing that brings you through that I mean, Zero Mostel is also wonderful. In the oh, film. yeah, he's fabulous. But, but Gene brings it to life. He, because he, he gives it life. Because he is, you know, he can do any of these things and you still just believe in him because he is so sweet. Yeah. He just, his his kindness and, you know, just decent personhood shines through so brightly, even Good as for he you. is That's working exactly on this. That's exactly how I, I felt about him. How can a producer make more money with a flop than he could with a hit? Well, it's simply a matter of creative accounting. Let's assume, just for the moment, that you are a dishonest man. Assume away. It's very easy. You simply raise more money than you really need. What do you mean? Well, you did it yourself, only you did it on a very small scale. What did I do? You raised $2,000 more than you needed to produce your last play. So what? What did it get me? I'm wearing a cardboard belt. Well, that's where you made your mistake. You didn't go all the way. You see, if you were really a bold criminal, you could have raised a million. But the play cost me only $60,000 to produce. And how long did it run? One night. Do you see? Do you see what I'm trying to tell you? You could have raised a million dollars, put on a $60,000 flop, and kept the rest. But what if the play was a hit? Well, then you'd go to jail. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm talking with Mel Brooks. He's the man behind films like Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs, and History of the World Part 1, a movie that includes some of my favorite terrible, terrible jokes ever. I heard that one of the things that uh, Gene Wilder got you to agree to um, when he agreed to come be in Blazing Saddles was to help him make Young Frankenstein and that one of the rules as the two of you were working on Young Frankenstein was that you weren't allowed to be in it. Yeah, right. He didn't want me to to be in a in a suit of armor and lift the visor <laughs> and say, hiya, folks. Yeah. He didn't want that, so... He said, "No, let's not let's not do a lot of fourth wall breaking here." You know, <laughs> there's not. I yeah. I was laughing about that because I was thinking back over your filmography. It's like, yeah, it is a very rare performance where there's not a moment where Mel Brooks yeah. turns to the audience and says, right. "Hey guys, here's a thing I thought of." It's got to be the king. I want to ask you a question about your uh, comedic madcap insanity. I I mentioned in the beginning the introduction that uh, History of the World is one of my favorite films and is a movie that I watched over and over and over and over as a kid. And History of the World is mostly sort of a sketch movie. And um, it, it would be hard to have a movie with more jokes than History of the World has. I mean, it's, it's wall-to-wall jokes. And some of the jokes are genuinely horrible. Yeah. There's a joke. There's a part where someone says the thing. The one that's sticking out of my mind is someone says the streets are crawling with Trojans, and you cut to 
soldiers crawling on the street. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is the worst joke. I it is. It's, a, it's probably you have good. <laughs> I would say, Jesse. I say you have you have good taste because that is probably the worst joke. You know, literal jokes are the worst jokes. <laughs> Don't be saucy with me, Bernays. They're meant to be bad jokes. You know that. They're meant to be. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not caught unawares. I mean, you know, some of my jokes have been so dumb and so silly and so... But they're, they're meant to do that. There's something about the shamelessness of it and the sort of, I guess, the shamelessness and gleefulness of it that you really seem to love a joke. Yeah. It's a bad kid giving his uncle a hot foot. You know, it's... It's bad. You know, it's, I, like, I like to do, obviously, in silent movie, I do some of the worst jokes I've ever done in my life. And I'm the only one laughing, but I'm on the floor. I'm, I'm, you know, I love it. So I've got you know, to please myself. Even though I offend hordes of people, it's still, I've, I've just got to please myself from time to time. <laughs> Well, Mel Brooks, we've, we've used more than our allotment of time. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. Well, it's my pleasure. This has been, this has been easy. The only thing that really rankles me and makes me upset about this interview is that there's no money in it whatsoever. You don't pay, <laughs> you don't, you, got, you don't pay a penny. The one and only Mel Brooks. The American Masters documentary Mel Brooks Make a Noise premieres on May 20th on PBS. You can also survey his career for yourself with his new box set, The Incredible Mel Brooks, an irresistible collection of unhinged comedy. Imagine, if you will, a psychedelic rock band, young hippies in matching white robes, guitar, bass, drums, and fronting them a 50-something man with a giant white beard banging a kettle drum and chanting the name of God. In a minute, we'll talk with the directors of a documentary about the cult that spawned this surreal and very real band and about the music that they created. There's sort of like a primal rawness to the music. It, it, it was God rock, but it wasn't like happy, hippie, gentle God rock. It was ferocious and sexy. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, this is Dave Hill, the pride of Cleveland, reminding you to listen to Dave Hill's podcasting incident, what critics are already calling basically the greatest podcast of all time, and you can ask anyone. And what makes it even better is that it's now part of the incredible Maximum Fun Network, which is great for me. They sent me a t-shirt, and so far the sex has been incredible. Anyway, you can listen to it on iTunes or by going to MaximumFun.org, the popular website on the internet. Dave Hill's podcasting incident. It's pretty much just like me making out with your ears or something. Okay, thanks. Bye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If I tell you to imagine a hippie cult in 1970s Los Angeles, what would you think of? Sort of Jesus-y leader, a lot of beards, flowing robes, yoga, vegetarian food, polygamy, rock music, Sunset Boulevard. Those were all real. The new film, The Source Family, tells the story of a man named Jim Baker, 
He was a decorated World War II veteran who went on to make millions in the restaurant business, kill two men with judo chops, rob banks, study kundalini yoga, open a hybrid religious center and health food eatery to the stars on the Sunset Strip, change his name to Father Yod, and lead a group of 150 beautiful young people in matching outfits toward enlightenment. He even fronted a house rock band, Yahoweh 13, whose private label recordings are beloved by collectors of psychedelica. Here's a little bit of the band's music. Come along, baby, come along, baby, come along, baby, gonna take you home. Come along, baby, come along, baby, come along, baby, gonna take you The directors of the Source family are with me here in the studio. Jody Willie, Maria Demopoulos, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us. So can we start, as your film does, by talking a little bit about who Jim Baker was before he was the leader of the Source family? Because he led, he was like middle-aged by the time he started this group, and he led a pretty wild and accomplished life before he grew a giant beard and donned white robes. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was uh, born in Cincinnati at midnight on the 4th of July, and he was named America's Strongest Boy <laughs> when <laughs> he was a child. You, did your research reveal how that was tested? <laughs> well, apparently it's on a magazine cover somewhere. Uh, multiple family members told us that uh, it was like American Health magazine. And he became a judo champion and a state champion in archery. And then he went off to the war, and he ended up getting a Silver Star medal in the war for shooting down 14 Japanese zeros. And then he uh, started a gym. He he fell in love with a woman. He had a baby. Uh, but he got restless, and he ended up leaving them and uh, buying an Indian motorcycle and driving cross-country to go um, audition for the part of Tarzan um, in Los Angeles, which he almost got. But he didn't get it, and then he fell in love with somebody else instead, fell in with the Nature Boys, who were this bohemian proto-hippie enclave in Topanga Canyon, and eventually uh, started two very influential health food restaurants. One was the Aware Inn, which was kind of a high-end organic gourmet restaurant that all the movie stars uh, went to and producers. And the other was the Old World, which was a little more casual. A lot of the, like the 60s rock stars went there, and, uh, and, and the same sort of elite clientele. Did he really uh, rob banks and kill people with judo chops? He did. He absolutely <laughs> did. <laughs> Verified. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he um, both times were in self-defense. And we actually have him talking about robbing banks in order to fund the restaurants. So he, he you know, talks about this. We have recordings of it. How did he transform himself from a guy who was, you know, like a, businessman riding high on this new 
this new cultural movement that was really hot in Los Angeles, which is to say, you know, uh, uh, health food and general hippiedom. Um, How did he go from that to religious leader? Mm. Well, you know, what we've pieced together is that in, um, I think it was about 67, he fell in love with a hippie girl. And he was always a womanizer. The ladies really loved him. But he fell really hard for this hippie girl named Dora. And he started doing LSD and smoking marijuana and listening to a lot of rock and roll for the first time. So he was having this kind of, you know, middle-aged moment. He was in in his 40s, and she was like 19. Exactly. So with the hippie culture that, you know, he was always fascinated by the kids who were on the Sunset Strip but didn't have any friends like that. So when he started to do the acid and and broke into that lifestyle, he he just jumped in fully but kind of lost control. And so according to family members and others who worked at the restaurant, we found out that he... He, he started doing, um, you know, speed and he was kind of stealing from the, the, the register a little more than most people do, you know, who, who run restaurants and, uh, and they wouldn't have any money to open up in the morning. So ultimately, the investors in the restaurant had him kicked out of the restaurant. So he started a new health food restaurant called The Source on the Sunset Strip that um, replaced his previous um, restaurant empire and became immensely successful. We actually have a, a clip from the film of uh, one of the members of the Source family who who you worked with on the film, Isis Aquarian, describing the first time that she saw him um, in the restaurant in Los Angeles. And at the time, she was engaged to uh, this legendary rock and roll photographer um, named Ron, Ra- Ron, excuse me, Ron Raffelli. And um, so you'll hear uh, her voice and then his voice explaining uh, why he wasn't on board with the whole thing. I drove down to the source and there's all these great looking men in white robes with their long hair. And I said, is Jim Baker here? So out comes this man. And I just looked at him and I just went, oh my God. And he just gave me a big hug. He just said, welcome, welcome home. What I just saw held more for me than anything that I had, and Ron would not come with me. At the time, I was shooting uh, groups like the Beach Boys, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, the Doors, Jefferson Airplane. And you think I'm going to live up my career and my art and wait on tables? What was it that was so appealing to these people? Because you guys talk to a lot of these folks. So what did they say they wanted when they, you know, when they decided to become religious busboys? Well, I think part of it was that the Source restaurant was the epicenter of this whole scene. So there was a draw just to be hanging out at the restaurant. But also Jim Baker, you know, was a very compelling person, full of charisma and a lot of the Source family members talk about when they first saw him, they laid eyes on him. It was just an immediate connection, an immediate draw, and they just they just knew that this was their destiny. A couple of folks in the film 
um, talk, speak really eloquently about, you know, the the fact that the Source family was called the Source family because it was organized as a family with Father Yod, um, Jim Baker, as the father. And it, it seems like there was also something particular about that point in time and these people wanting a father that cared about them or that openly cared about them. Yeah, a lot of the relationships, a lot of the nuclear families at that point were sort of were fractured. You know, the kids weren't in agreement with their parents. The parents were endorsing this war that they weren't in agreement with. And so there are these fundamental differences, and they just were looking for something different. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Maria Demopoulos and Jody Willey. They're the directors of a documentary called The Source Family. The film traces the transformation of James Baker, a World War II veteran and restaurateur, into Father Yod, the leader of a 1970s commune in the Hollywood Hills. The film's currently playing in theaters across the country. There's a moment in the film where uh, one of the folks describes the moment he took down the picture of the yogi and put up the picture of himself. Um, so w- what changed and how did it change? Well, you know, according to the family members we interviewed, you know, so, okay, he was obsessed with Yogi Bhajan. Yogi Bhajan had helped transform his life. And Yogi Bhajan decided that he would make him the leader of the ashram um, in Los Angeles. And so he took him to India to meet his guru. And something happened in India where Yogi Bhajan disenchanted Jim Baker. He'd promised a man he would help his his, sick child and then just blew him off the next day, something like that. And um, so when he came back, he had this feeling of disenchantment. And at the same time, Robin was recognizing this community that was forming around the Source family and and said, Jim, why don't you hold your own meditations? You know, why don't you just do that? And really encouraged him. So he did. He started having meditations in the restaurant and they were immediately very popular. The complete atheistic view or the complete spiritual, God-conscious view. Polarities prevail. But if what I have to say to you is true, you see where being in such a family benefits you. What was actually happening in the meditations? Like when you say meditation, I picture something that's very different from what I heard on the audio recordings of what the meditations were. So describe to our audience what was going on. Well, it was basically extemporaneous speaking. You know, he was... uh, mixing together all of these different philosophies and just channeling them and speaking to this group of people. He would do everything from, you know, seemingly channel, uh, you know, wise words from Atlantis to start singing, you know, crooner songs from the 30s. And, uh, and it was just a big mixed bag. Every, every day was different. But it always, it always involved breathing techniques and chanting the name of God. That was really important. The yod heh vav was the, the secret name of God that he was trying to make public. That was sort of the glue of the meditations. Was was there like an ideology going on? Well, it started with the Ten Commandments for the Age of Aquarius, and then also the Book of Liberation, which was the book that he had in the restaurant. 
immediately when he started the family. You know, what Father Yo told people was that changes the order of the universe. So he was very careful not to do anything too long. He was really into changing things up and and, and making people um, accustomed to that. And, and he also did not want to have his words turned into an, a religion. At the same time, the, the first two commandments of those Ten Commandments concern the uh, earth, what's it called, the earthly heavenly father? Earthly like, spiritual father. Earthly spiritual father, and um, that you should respect and uh, observe everything that he says, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. It's true. <laughs> Got to pay attention. <laughs> and they, they also talked about living in the eternal now, uh, which was, you know, living very much in the present, which goes to what Jody was saying about things ch- changing constantly. So he would come downstairs and he would g- give these meditations and he would just decide, OK, today we're going to do this. And every day, you know, it was different than family members talk about how it was this uh, roller coaster ride. It was just highs and lows. and They just kept going with the flow. How important was music to the group? It was extremely important. You know, it was part of uh, an expression of prayer and meditation. So, you know, after after their meditations, um, they would the musicians would take uh, you know a six second hit of Sacred Herb, go into the recording studio at six o'clock in the morning, and play music and it was a a, a daily ritual and they they recorded 65 albums in two years there were a lot of singer-songwriters who came into the family, and uh, they originally performed some of those songs, but then Father Yod noticed that the musicians' egos were getting a little too hot and heavy, so he insisted from then on that all of the music be spontaneous. Kind of like jazz, you know? That meant that all these musicians had to be extremely present, paying attention to each other, and then accommodate Father Yod, who would, who would come in and start screaming and banging on the kettle drum, and, um, and it became a sort of a ritual. There was sort of like a primal rawness to the music it, it 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 was god rock but it wasn't like happy hippie gentle god rock it was ferocious and sexy you know sexual in some aspects it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guests are Maria Demopoulos and Jody Willey. They're the directors of a documentary called The Source Family. When you see the film footage that's in your film of this group of people, the things that strike me are, A, everyone seems too good-looking to be in this unusual of a religious cult. <laughs> um, and And B... Everyone seems super, super happy. But there was also things going on that were making some people really uncomfortable and having a lot of problems. I want to play one clip from the film. This is one of the Source family members that you interviewed, Magus. He's talking about why he ended up having to leave the group. Um, So let's take a listen. It was getting very, very strange there. (laughs) 
The teachings on health were, in many cases, I think, very progressive and, and very advanced. Some of them, I thought, were really irresponsible. For example, we completely abdicated the right to use medicine for any reason whatsoever. I had a, a young boy, and he developed a very, very serious ear infection. And he was running an extraordinarily high fever, like 104. And I really wanted to get him antibiotics. There's no need for keeping. I was scared that my kid was going to die. Anything. And they're chanting and they're, they're shining uh, blue light and green lights onto him. And there was so much peer pressure. I knew I had to get the hell out of there. And so I just, I just left. There's, there's a moment when people in the family, um, and, you know, including folks who uh, stayed with the family and you interviewed later, start to wonder how um, in or out of control uh, he was. Well, I, what happened was once they sold the restaurant, it was the goose that was laying the golden eggs. They moved to Hawaii. A lot of their assets and you know disappeared, and they weren't able to be sustainable. But why did they do that first? First, um, well, Father Yod was, was starting to have some uh, visions that they needed to leave and to get to higher mountaintops to be in a safer place because he had he believed that there was an apocalypse coming. So they had to leave Los Angeles. And uh, Manson had happened, so they were under a lot of scrutiny, and, and he wanted to be more isolated and be in a safer place. And also, I mean, the family were outlaws. You know, he was an outlaw. They were an outlaw. They were doing all these things that were illegal at the time. It was illegal to have more than five unrelated people live together in a house. It was illegal to breastfeed in public. It was illegal to homeschool your kids. It was illegal to have babies born naturally at home. And these were all things that, and and to smoke the sacred herb. And so these were all things that were fundamental to the family. So they were doing a lot of things illegally, but also... A lot of the the newspaper clippings were, uh, it it seemed like authorities were objecting to... uh, the fact that there were teenage girls joining the group. Oh, yeah. And there was that, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there were a lot of, you know, I mean, it was the 70s. You know, kids were running away at 12 years old and and kids were uh, were. It's not at all like it was, you know, when I was growing up in the the 80s and 90s. You know, you had kids who were leaving home early, who were sexualized early, who were taking drugs early, and then you were in Hollywood. And um, so you did. You had underage kids who who were getting involved in occult rituals and things like that. And then Father Yod was just always outrageous. You know, he he would um, send sons to like the Jewish temple down on Wilshire and have them go into go into a service and say, you know, we are Jesus. We are all Jesus. You know, like he was doing like what I would consider public theater, like almost performance art. It was kind of like multidimensional uh, performance art that was really outrageous. And so a lot of people in power were kind of keeping a, you know, a wary eye on him and the family. So they sold the restaurant and moved to Kauai. Um, But I think like a lot of people who, um, of that cultural cohort who uh, moved from the mainland to Hawaii, they discover that maybe the Hawaiians weren't what they imagined them to be. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> Which <laughs> is to definitely. say, happy about a bunch of hippies moving to where they live. Yeah, yeah. No, they they um, were not well received. And part of that was that there were other communal groups who were there previously, um, for instance, Taylor Camp and who was, what was the other? The Hare Krishnas. The Hare Krishnas that were there. And, and they were creating a lot of ruckus with the natives as well. So by the time the Source family landed in Hawaii, um, they were not well received at all. And they were just over having these communal, these large communal families in, on their islands. So by the time they got there, they um, they just didn't have a way to sustain themselves. And so they were running out of money fast and um, things got very stressful, you know, and, and that's where a lot of the complications came up. It seems like... Um Father Yod at that period in time went through a a religious crisis of his own. He had essentially presented himself uh, by he was essentially presenting himself by that point as um, as God or the part of the family line of God conveying godliness to his children Um, and you have folks talking in the film about him openly openly asking whether he might not be God. Or even saying, I'm not God, which mm-hmm. is what he did. And just to be clear, you know, it's so, it's so complicated, um, some of the teachings in the family to convey in, a, in an hour and a half film. But what he basically taught the family members was we are all God. You know, we're all manifestations of God. We all have God within us. There's no separation like there is in Christianity where you've got God and then you've got the devil and you're kind of aim hapless. You've got to choose one or the other. For him, he, he said, we've all got all of those things inside of us and you can, you know, choose to live the life that you want to lead. So they embraced the shadow, but also they embraced the aspect that they were all God. But what happened in the family was when he started performing these kind of miraculous acts, like there was phenomenon going on in the family, and many family members told us this. You know, they were seeing ghosts in the stairways, and Father Yod, you know, had lightning bolts coming out of his ears, a lot of phenomena. Um, and so the the women, especially from what we've been told, really um, like to think of him as the highest uh, peak in consciousness on the planet. And he bought into that, you know? And so they ultimately, they wanted him to be God because, you know, it's more special when you're hanging out with God, you know, <laughs> than just a servant of God. But, um, and so they, they, that he, he played along with that for a while. And, and, and what the crisis was, I think, was him just realizing, like, you know, I've been playing, like, I'm just a man. You know, God is way beyond all of us, even though we may be a part of it. We're just human. It seems like a big part of his crisis is just realizing that, um, you know, from his perspective, that while he may have godliness, may have God inside him, he doesn't have the power of God. Just say he cannot change the course of events and make the situation any less dire for him and his followers. Yeah, I think that's the beauty, really, in the story, because, you know, you you think of the stereotype of the cult leader, and it's usually somebody who is such a narcissist and is so blind to... To, to to who they really are, and they're just, um, you know, uh, they're avoiding a lot of things, and they, they become less than human in some ways. And, and what was beautiful about Father Yod was he retained his humility, even in the end, and, and had had the, you know, the guts to admit it to everybody. He retained his humility to the extent that a man with 13 wives and a Rolls Royce can. <laughs> the Rolls Royce was gone at that okay. point. <laughs> Long gone. Um. So at at the peak of 
the problems, he he does something that's sort of like committing a ritual suicide. Um, maybe you could describe what, what he did. He uh, decided to go hang gliding on a very windy day, and he was not um, prepared for it. You know, it was it was not a safe or sane thing to do necessarily. And so. he did it knowingly. I mean, you play audio of him discussing that he was going to do this without having prepared for it. Correct. And uh, as he was leaving the, the glass house with his wives, uh, they, they passed um, somebody on the way out, and he, he, he basically said in Latin, you know, we who are about to die salute you. And so there were these kind of omens and, or just, you know, things leading up to, to believe you that he was definitely testing fate. You know, I think he was tired. And, and he said that to a lot of family members. You know, for months he was saying, listen, I've taught you everything I know. Go cut your hair and get a job. But people people didn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And, and so I think he was testing, testing fate. What happened when he died? Well, the family has a very specific way of handling natural death. It's part of, you know, it's, it's very fundamental to their philosophy, just like natural birth. And they... Um, you know, hung on to the body for three days and, uh, you know, tried to go about, they basically went through the steps of what they had learned from their father. So it was interesting because they had been taught how to deal with natural death. And as soon as they had, and father, of course, was the first body to die that they could practice their rituals on. So they went ahead and took care of his body. And they did it by, you know, it's it's actually an ancient esoteric um, ritual to help prepare the the soul, you know, the soul when it's leaving the body, where you let the the body sit for three and a half days undisturbed, not refrigerated, not tampered with in any way. You light a candle at the foot and the head, and you chant the name of God. So you're helping it to, you know, helping it to have a safe passage into the next realm. So it was very sacred for them, but the authorities, of course, thought it was really creepy, and and that that turned them into a Manson-like family even more, you know, after that happened and, and turned the, the, the locals against them. What happened to the group uh, in, the, in the years that followed? Well, they slowly started to disband. I mean, for a while they held it together and they were trying to continue living as a family. And Makushla actually became the head of the family. She um, was his sort of pr- primary wife of, yeah. of, the, of the group of wives that came second. Yeah, and she also seemed to be the most neutral. People really respected her, so she she took over. But it just didn't. It wasn't the same as as having father there. So um, slowly, they it just kind of fell apart, and people started to drift away and go back to their families or to start new lives. And uh, you know, it was a kind of a slow decline. And then the, the cocaine years and the disco years happened, and there was some there was a dark period for a lot of those people, just trying to to immerse back in this society. When when you talked to these folks 40 years after all of this happened, how did they describe the ways that um, that it changed their lives? Um, what I found most striking is that even though, you know, some of them have gone into very different directions from each other, you know, one woman started two successful vegetarian restaurants, another woman became a blackjack dealer, another man became a stem cell pioneer, somebody else was one of the dot-com leaders. Um, what they all seemed to do after the family was each of them seemed to find a way to live life on their own terms. 
and um, to do it in a way that is outside the the rat race, so to speak. Can I ask you two whether you'd sign up given the opportunity? <laughs> uh, personally, uh, if if this was happening in Hollywood now, I would be very intrigued by it and I would go check it out. And I mean, there's, it's so seductive. You can't help but be intrigued by it. So I would check it out, but I would not have joined myself. For me, um, hell yeah. I would have joined in a second. Are you kidding? <laughs> I would have jumped in for just a little bit, though, because I love my family. I couldn't have gone, you know, without more than a couple weeks talking to my parents. <laughs> the Source family is currently in a limited theatrical release. It's opening in a bunch of additional cities this weekend. For a full list of theaters showing the film, visit thesourcedoc.com. Thank you two so much for joining us on Bullseye. Thank you for Thanks having, for having us. us. Jody Willie and Maria Demopoulos are the directors of the film. Man who realizes that is free. We like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. I bought a house the other day, or what I made an offer on a house, and it was accepted. It was kind of a big deal. I grew up in San Francisco with pretty broke parents. In my world, saying I'm buying a house was sort of like saying I'm buying a basketball team or I'm buying a hovercraft. It was just something that normal people didn't do. But soon I'll be a homeowner with gutters to clear and a radon detector and our own yard that may or may not contain skunks. I get the feeling I'm going to be spending a lot of time with one of my favorite books, Home Comforts by Cheryl Mendelson. This book, this book, it is tremendous. Imagine anything to do with your home, anything from folding linens to accidental poisoning. It's covered in home comforts and and not just covered, covered thoughtfully, pleasantly, even gracefully. Here are a few of the sections, and this is just a little selection. Handling photographs. Administering your insurance policies. The advantages of a cool, dark pantry. How to pin laundry on the line. Glossary of sanitizers and disinfectants. Ventilation, temperature, and relative humidity. Privacy, sex, and the Constitution. Kindly light. Home Comforts never preaches or offers proclamations. Just plain, readable explanations of everything you need to know about the most important place in your life. Home Comforts is a gracious book about keeping a gracious home. And as I face down a great change in my life, I'm grateful for it. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Thanks to our intern, Thomas Matisik, for production help on this week's show. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is provided by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. So that's about it for this week. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.